Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This week on Truth and Movies, Bruce Willis, James McAvoy and Samuel L. Jackson form a supernatural supergroup in M. Night Shyamalan's Glass. Everything extraordinary can be explained away. It's till meth they do part for Steve Carell and Timothy Chalamet in father-son drug abuse drama Beautiful Boy. I was worried that you were smoking too much pot. Meanwhile, you're out doing every drug on the planet? And in Film Club, come on, let's twist again. Haley Joel Osment sees dead people in the 90s mega hit The Sixth Sense. How often do you see them? All the time. All coming up in Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. It's Michael Eder here in the host chair, sitting across from a pair of top-tier Little White Lies contributors, bringing a touch of French class to our discussion of glass, no doubt, is Manuela Lazic. Welcome, Manuela. Bonjour. And our very own beautiful boy, Campbell A. Campbell. Oh, Welcome back, Cam. <laughs> nice to be here. I'm very flattered. <laughs> we'll be talking about the new releases very shortly, but first a bit of follow-up from last week. Now, have either of you seen 24-Hour Party People? It was our film club pick last week. I saw it years ago, and I think I'm not even sure I was living in the UK, mm-hmm. but I remember being really baffled by it because I was like, what is this culture? What are these people? Who is this man? Steve Coogan. Uh-huh. But I, I quite liked it at the time. I yeah. found it pretty energetic. I, I really need a rewatch. Well, for me on rewatch, it was amazing. But on first watch for yeah. <laughs> for both both uh, Simran and David last week, it was quite positively received. But we have an email from Stuart Jones here. Dear T and Emma's, your discussion of 24-hour party people in the last pod reminded me of the time I saw it and the unusual thing that occurred. It was a preview screening in Manchester and Peter Hook himself was in attendance and sat a few rows behind me. During the scene early on in the film when producer Martin Hannett is shown swearily berating Joy Division for their early ramshackle performance of She's Lost Control, Hook shouted out, That didn't happen! In the subsequent scene where the band is shown playing the song properly, he said more cheerfully, Ah, that's more like it. As this is the only time something like this has ever happened to me in my years of cinema going, I thought I'd ask the pod, have you ever attended a screening of a biographical film in the presence of one of its subjects? And did they heckle it? This sounds Uh, like quite a question. I don't think I ever have. Me neither. I have, but it was Uh for another Michael Winterbottom film, like the one he did about Wolf Alice. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. So I was working at the BFI at the time mm-hmm. as an usher, and I was just kind of sat down on the screen, and I was like, oh, this sounds weird. And all of Wolf Alice and the crew were in attendance. But I don't know if they so much heckled it as they kind of just whooped and cheered at every second of the movie, because <laughs> if you know about the film, there's a fictional storyline kind of grafted onto this tour 
documentary where it's like two actors are playing like a manager and a roadie who like fall in love so like there was a sex scene and everyone just lost their minds (laughs) so um that was about it i don't think there's any real heckling or maybe apart from like members of the band yelling about it dissing each other but Mm. um it was friendly not like uh yeah. yeah. Accusations about so Michael Winterbottom has form with yeah. this. Yeah. <laughs> that's not stressful. Like, if I can avoid seeing the film with the real people, I think I would because, mm-hmm. oh god, like biopics in general are such an interesting, complicated affair. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it must be interesting. I've heard stories like of, uh, you know, screenings of some films or like documentaries, especially where the real people turned out to be there like they were not expected and it turns really bizarre because they don't like the film things like that so that sounds special mm. but yeah that sounds like a good one to uh, for people. Yeah, I don't think I have any examples of that but if listeners if you do let us know via the usual mm. channels at Truth and Movies on Twitter truthandmovies at tcolondon.com via email or on the comments section at lwlies.com slash podcast anyway that's last week's films let's crack on with this week's films first up we have Glass M. Night Shyamalan brings together the narratives of his previous films Split and Unbreakable for this crossover thriller. James McAvoy's Kevin Crumb returns from Split, bringing with him his multiple personalities, while both Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson reprise their roles as suburban superhero David Dunn and his arch-nemesis Mr. Glass. All three end up in the care of a psychiatrist, played by Sarah Paulson, who wants to cure these remarkable men of their delusions of grandeur. What's upsetting you, Patricia? What if he can't do these extraordinary What if he is just unwell? Like you. Everything extraordinary can be explained away, and yet it is true. I think deep down you know this. Everything we will see and do will have a basis in science, but it will have limits. This is the real world, not a cartoon. And yet some of us don't die from bullets. Some of us can still bend steel. That is not a fantasy. Samuel L. Jackson giving a pep talk to James McAvoy there. So this is a complicated pseudo-sequel to two films, one of which came out almost two decades ago now. Cam, bring us up to speed. What's going on here (laughs) with M. Night Shyamalan? Okay. (laughs) Um, So in the 19 years since Unbreakable, M. Night Shyamalan has had, he had some good films early on in his career. He had some films widely considered as pretty bad. Right. And then kind of had a bit of a comeback with what I think it was a visit mm-hmm. and then split which split audiences I suppose because I know some people who absolutely despise it and I liked it personally I, I think it's it. a <laughs> fun goofy film a quality it shares with glass but it's kind of reconciling two very different tones here with Unbreakable's got kind of very slow and somber and split which is utterly insane um, <laughs> it was the end of split what i loved about split was that it was almost for what an hour and a half an hour and 40 minutes a straight up b-movie schlocky uh, yeah. dorky film and then in the last second very last scene there's just a pan where in, in this cafe bruce willis from unbreakable is there and you realize that all along m night Shyamalan has been planning <laughs> this crossover his, his big return in the biggest way i remember um 
watching that and the James Newton Howard theme from mm. the first one starts playing and someone behind me just starts like hyperventilating. <laughs> <laughs> and I just kind of, I just started kind of, uh, I went with um, Steph, my partner, and just, I kept just kind of bumping and just like, it's happening, it's happening. She's like, what are you talking about? Because you've never seen Unbreakable. And it's like, oh, it's bedraggled Bruce Willis sitting at a bar. But mm. it was just, the implication was ridiculous. And I went I've been to see Split this. with Simran Hans, mm-hmm, yeah. uh, fellow podcast. Uh, friend and uh, she hadn't seen Unbreakable as well and so like when we see Bruce Lee I was like oh my god and she's like what <laughs> why is he here I was like <gasps> yeah it was and great there's absolutely no reason to expect that to happen because no. there's such different genre of films yeah. really that you know Unbreakable sort of was before superhero movies the modern paradigm of which kind of was set so it was this you know as you say dark somber character piece about this man in the suburbs discovering he may have or may not have special powers and then Split is this full tilt James McAvoy playing 20 odd different personalities in the same mm. body B-movie yeah. and so Glass has to somehow join the two and then pay off both notably one of those personalities thinks it's like an animal god thing oh the beast yeah the beast. yes yeah the weird thing i think about split is that the whole time there's no like superhero theme no. at all and then they start being like what if the beast was a hero and that's how like they connect it with the uh, with unbreakable mm-hmm. which i find quite smart actually because what's the difference between a crazy beast man and a superhero and that's mm-hmm. what the whole film is about really mm-hmm. and it's pretty well done is it know. pretty well done for you, Karen? <laughs> yeah. Um, for me, it kind of um, swerved very aggressively between just being utterly insane and kind of genius. It still has all the very kind of particular Shyamalan touches, like how he's very specific about how he moves the camera in uh, certain ways. So, like, if he wants to convey something, you absolutely make sure it's clear. So maybe when a character has, like something shocking revealed to them the camera will literally turn their world upside down yeah. Which yeah, is, yeah. or something along those lines doubling back to Unbreakable though I really think that if it had been more of a hit it probably would have set the precedent for mm-hmm. superhero films in the way that something like The Dark Knight mm. did where it was like ah these comic book films can be taken seriously uh, so if they're grim and like gritty but Unbreakable is kind of different in that it's a lot more somber and like you said character driven and it's more concerned with the kind of daily uh, mm. life of uh, Bruce Willis's character than um, how bad he's got it, I suppose. It really surprised me how much of a sequel to Unbreakable this was. Not necessarily yeah. in tone, but the fact that they bring back almost the entire cast, even yeah. the, the, the former child actor yeah. that played the son in Unbreakable. Yeah. And I also, thought it was Haley Joel Osment. <laughs> he was a sort of Haley Joel Osment stand-in, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah. um, I saw Glass and I was like, wow, they did a really good casting for the son, but like, it's the same <laughs> one. <laughs> I didn't and they even, it, like, it's... In his own ambitious way, M. Night Shyamalan is bringing together two massive competitors here because Disney and Universal have teamed up because Unbreakable was was part of the Disney empire when that was released and and then he made Split as part of this ongoing relationship with Jason Blum's Blumhouse and then released by Universal. And it's amazing reading that there was a gentleman's agreement when Split was released that uh, he would be allowed to use James Newton Howard's score and the character of David Dunn as long as Disney could be involved in the release of this movie. It's just mad. I don't think on a theatrical release, I don't think these Buena Vista International and Universal I don't think it ever worked together on a film mm, before That's crazy. And of all the films it was this one. Yeah. So is this a serious superhero movie, Cam? You said that's uh, what Un- Unbreakable could have set the, you know, the tone for. In places I mean, it takes 
it's, it takes itself very seriously, at least. He has these very big musings about comic books and comic book films and how we relate to them, what we seek in these heroes and what defines them. Because, like you were saying, they lump in both mass murderer and a serial killer mm-hmm. in with David Dunn, who is a more traditional superhero. But then they all have their kind of own ideals and extraordinary abilities. So it just kind of plays with how we see these kind of heroes because in his own kind of way the quote-unquote beast sees itself as this righteous figure Mm -hmm. who like a superhero might use his violence to kind of meet these ends and Shyamalan is is very big on superheroes are damaged personalities they have trauma in their past that is key to their powers and key to their superhero persona yeah it's kind of they're filtering their trauma through these things so David Dunn kind of suffering a kind of childhood trauma is naturally invincible so it's kind of like he's got this shell around him Mr. Glass does what he does because otherwise he feels like he has no meaning it's a lot of these people like processing their trauma into a kind of strength in a different way I found it super interesting because when Split was released a lot of people had a problem with that obviously because there's the character of uh, Anya Taylor-Joy who had some trauma like really intense trauma and the film sort of didn't really imply but like literally said that because she had this trauma she was like the James McAvoy character and that was like a strength that she actually had and and it's a weird way to frame trauma obviously because mm. it's not something you wish on anyone but the film was kind of saying actually that makes us different and cool and it's like <laughs> okay no but but then I think I don't want to spoil it obviously because that would be mm-hmm. just terrible but Glass really I think deals with that question in really interesting ways mm. I don't know if ultimately it says anything really <laughs> I don't know if it really makes up for that split weird mistake maybe mm-hmm. but it does like question it it doesn't like Shyamalan isn't avoiding the question really so I found that pretty impressive and on the whole I found Glass really at once it's like it's not really about all the twists it's more really a drama and it really mm. works with the previous films in really I think like mature way which is weird to say for Shyamalan okay. yeah. <laughs> but for me it was like really like pushing things forward and maybe that makes it a little less fun and a little less Shyamalan mm-hmm. but I don't have a problem with that it's a good movie I think I think that what I love about this third act of Shyamalan's career he started as the next Steven Spielberg yeah. with mm-hmm. Sixth Sense and Unbreakable with the camera moves with this sort of this serious suburban sensibility and so on and then he goes through his larger budgeted phase where he was making films that were very widely you know, derided. Now he's both those things at once. His films are trash, but also quite serious, but also doesn't take themselves seriously at all. Yeah. And then they have, as well, these performances that are both quite expert but also ridiculous. And yeah. I'd, Manuela, I, I know you're a fan of James McAvoy in this. <laughs> yes. Please tell us what James McAvoy is doing. So... Because James McAvoy plays someone who has 24 personalities, that means that he gets to do a lot of different things. And I think he could easily be hammy, but I really don't think he is, because he really takes all of these personalities really seriously. Like he doesn't play anyone like to make fun of that character. Like when he plays the nine-year-old boy... Mm-hmm. he's not making fun of him. He's funny because he's a nine-year-old silly boy, but he's not like making fun of what a nine-year-old is. And I think each of his characters is deeply convincing. And there's this really amazing scene in the film that's completely pointless. Like, nothing happens dramatically, but he's just to show off all his personalities. I don't want to spoil it, but like it's really long and like it makes scene. no sense. But, but it's just to show off how he can switch in one single take or like one second to the next. And it's 
incredible. Like, I think it's an actor's wet dream, this part, because you get to do all of these impressions. They're kind of like impersonations. But you really get to, like, stay the same. Like, he doesn't have... I'm sure there's, like, a bit of CGI when he's the beast, but like, otherwise, mm-hmm. he's very... Yeah, yeah, like, veins and stuff. But otherwise, he's, it's just him. And it's, like, that's what actors are supposed to do, and it's beautiful. I think just for that... I think this movie is really worth watching. Just the way he contorts his body and yeah. his face. That scene's so incredible because you just see him just kind of, one minute he'll just be this huge dude and then he'll kind of like drop down to this more diminutive thing. He yeah. like changes his like expression just like seamlessly and it's just really yeah. weirdly convincing. And like you said, he takes it so seriously, which is great because like the kind of center personality, like his original self, Kevin, is a really tragic yeah. character that He's he plays regular, really well. He's just a regular guy as well. Yeah. Just like a broken regular guy, but all the others are like weirdly intense, but still believable. Like, what I don't understand is how he, he always has the same muscle amount. <laughs> like, he looks yeah. so different. Yeah. Like, when he plays the woman, Patricia... He's so like distinguished and he likes to sort of clasp serious. his neck. Yeah, he's, he's like he's always like covered, it, like, always like covered like, up or like yeah. his yeah. up to his neck. And something. his lips are like like this. I don't know how to say that, but yeah. And then it's crazy. Like it's just it's such a delight. I'd love to know how much the Beast persona is based on Hugh Jackman as, as Logan. <laughs> <laughs> Must be a lot. Like yeah. he's, he's extending his neck and yeah, it's great. He's, he's stacked somewhere yeah. between Logan and like a weird country preacher <laughs> it was that line where he's just like they no longer believe <laughs> yeah. it's great. so this this film has really divided people so far the American critics who saw it last week and now the British critics who are seeing it this week and the French love it and the French love it yeah, <laughs> yeah. well I mean the French delegation yeah exactly yeah. They but, don't, like, the French are really weird with like problematic stuff they don't care they don't. <laughs> like, so they're like oh yeah it's, it's brilliant like, uh-huh. is it But uh, let's see what we think. Let's put some scores on this. So in anticipation, enjoyment, in retrospect, Campbell Hale comes to you first. Um, I think I'm going to go with a three, then a four, and maybe... I think I'm gonna. I'm landing on a three because Mm -hmm. I could have gone either way. I really enjoyed its kind of deconstruction of comic book stuff, but then also, even though... Shyamalan does like keep it very specific with his camera movements and everything, and he has a very like kind of developed visual language. When he starts talking about the themes, mm. it gets incredibly obnoxious, and there's a lot of moments in the film that start to pile up where it's like, ah, just like in comic books, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, and it it becomes a bit much when there's maybe like three or four characters all telling you having this kind of meta-analysis of what's going on mm. and it becomes kind of patronising. Mm-hmm. So for that, I think it lost me a bit towards the end. And then it got me, it won me right back <laughs> with some moments. But yeah, it's a really enjoyable thing, but also an utter mess and completely bonkers and I'm so happy it exists. <laughs> Manuela. I mean, yeah, I had heard such different things about it, so I would say free in anticipation. Enjoyment, definitely like a good four. And retrospect for I think because oh, I, yeah. I don't think it's messy. I think it's smart. I think mm. it's like, like I love that uh, Shaman has Twitter and like <laughs> when he was writing, he's like whatever how many drafts he was tweeting about. It, he was like, oh, I wrote my last draft. I love creating whatever. <laughs> like, it's so good. And uh, and you can tell that he worked on it. I don't know. Like I feel I feel like he really ties everything together. And it is like really about like the central story is about. Are they really superheroes? Like, it's really about debunking those things and about why do we really want superheroes to exist and all that. And I find that, yeah, maybe a little simple, a little patronizing, but it really works in the film. And also, James McAvoy, 
James James McAvoy. So good. Yeah. I think Samuel L. Jackson was really great in it as well. Yeah. He was as well. Like, even though he's the title character, he doesn't really come into his own until maybe the, the second act of the movie, and mm. then he's fantastic. And when and he, he, has, has, he sells the hell out of it. He has a great sort of initial tie clip where it's MG, because his oh. first name is Mr. and his second name is Glass. Oh, <laughs> as the film tells us many times. <laughs> I was in the pocket for M. Night Shyamalan. I love this phase of his career, so four in anticipation I really did enjoy this and so I think I'm a 4-4-3 four, four, mm. I think M. Night Shyamalan is a maniac of a director he really does not care anymore he's come out the other side he's made great movies best picture nominated movies he's made widely derided box office flops and now he's just making movies for himself I don't think you'll see a film that is equally as dumb and profound at the same moment yeah. something where you really don't know what's coming where the filmmaker is really relishing what they're doing and with the twists and turns character moments his own cameo that happens very early in the film oh, of course God. the way that works that was a for a fan of his movies of course M. Night Shyamalan's had a cameo in half his movies nearly you know, more, maybe more than half this one is a weird crossover cameo yeah, um, I'm not going to say any yeah, more than no, that yeah, it's, it's um, delightful one thing I will say I don't think he's read a comic book in his life I, I think that whenever <laughs> it tries to make a comment on superhero movies superhero comics stories I think it falls down mm. and anyone who's hoping that in the 20 years between Unbreakable where superhero myths and stories have become the major pop cultural storytelling format of our time if you're expecting this to make comments on that I don't mm. think you're going to get much from it I love that. That's a good point. I mean, I learned that like comic books are generally in the zeitgeist now, and he has the nerve to have a scene where it's just like, ah, oh, so tell me about the first comic book. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's so him through and through. I love that. Undeniably, M. Night Shyamalan, I'm glad we have him. Anyway, that was Glass. I think that's <laughs> quite a, a baffled and excited recommendation from all around the table. Yeah. But up next, we have Beautiful Boy. Based on dual memoirs by David and Nick Sheff, Beautiful Boy chronicles a teenager's experiences with crystal meth addiction seen from the perspective of his doting dad who tries to reach out to his son through the cycle of lies, recovery and relapse. Steve Carell plays David, a Rolling Stone writer, here confronting Nick, Timothy Chalamet, about his withdrawn, reclusive behaviour. Why are you always in this room? You hardly ever come out of here. It's like you're the vampire. Read. I draw. You know what we should do? We should go surfing. Yeah. That sound good? Kind of into other things now, you know? Reading misanthropes and seriously depressed writers. Oh, come on, they're... They're kind of great, though, right? I get it. It'll pass, though. It always does. What does? The feeling of being alienated and isolated. Huh, that really helps. Thanks for the advice, Dad. Okay. All right, that was... I came out wrong, I'm sorry. Mm -mm. Steve Carell, Timothy Chalamet, and Massive Attack there in that clip. We'll get to the soundtrack eventually, I think. But Manuela, beautiful boy, it's... One of those biopic, maybe awards baiting dramas, would you say? Yeah, I mean, it is a biopic, but uh, it's interesting to see a biopic where that is based on two people's perspectives on the same event. And but ultimately, I think that's the problem of the film mm -hmm. because it loses the experiences of both. And uh, the thing is that the film is called Beautiful Boy. Which, which, which is the name of David Chef's book, memoir, right, okay. as opposed to Nick's. Yeah, yeah, which is interesting because I think that shows how 
the film is really more about the dad, which is fine because it's his perspective on his son who he realizes that he struggles to help through drug addiction. That also means that we never get to understand this boy. Like we never get to see anything really that makes you care really about him. Like, I mean, it's, it's horrible to see him go through this, mm. but you don't really care. You're just worried a bit mm. and like, that's sad. But you're not like, you don't get to share Steve Carell's character, David Chef's worry as much, mm. which I think is such a shame. Because of that, the film often becomes like a prevention video mm. where it's like, oh, drugs are bad. And like, yeah, it's very hard. I'm like, yeah, I know that, but you're not really saying me on anything else mm -hmm. and I, I just think that's such a it's a trend in cinema these days to have like virtue signaling movies that are like about extreme cases because you, we don't want to confront the real problems like drug addiction that's like a really extreme case but there are many people who suffer and who really try and help and like it's a story that's more simple but also more like graspable for people who don't understand it and I think there are so many of these films with Chalamet and also with his fellow Uh, young actor Lucas Hedges where it's like oh we want to f make a movie about homophobia let's make a movie about conversion therapy like that happens but that doesn't happen that much these days and also there are many people who suffer from casual homophobia which is mm. like a real thing we need to educate people more about like everyone will agree that sending people to conversion therapy is bad mm -hmm. like so yeah. I just I just think like, that movie Beautiful Boy to me was a lot of like virtue signaling and being like aren't drugs terrible And I didn't really connect with it. Did you connect with it, Cam? No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I agree with what Manny was saying about how it never really lets you truly get inside the characters' heads. Mm -hmm. um, it's mostly from the dad's perspective, but because we don't understand his son, we don't really understand how he feels about him. It leaves a lot of the more intimate parts of their relationship until a lot later in the film. And yeah. by that point, I was kind of past caring. Mm. And without that kind of affection for the characters or understanding of them, a lot of the... This is the thing I felt bad about, even though they're real events based on two people's memoirs. Yeah, exactly. Some of it felt phony, like mm -hmm. it couldn't sell things that actually happened. Mm. So it just felt like it was running through like the talking points of what happens when your child is like drug addicted, they might steal from you or like it, this might happen or this cliches, might happen. It yeah. felt like cliches because it didn't feel authentic because it didn't let us understand the characters yeah. like. Sorry. It, it, to the point of self-parody at times. The oh, screenplay yeah. has so many moments that I think are unintentionally hilarious. It's, it's there's so many drugs in the, the system. Exactly. There's, there's a frame narrative where David Sheff sort of does research for an article about drug addiction, about meth addiction, in order to understand the experiences mm. more. So he goes to scientists and he's like, my son's on all sorts of drugs. <laughs> uh, during an argument, you know, the point where his top is blowing off, Steve Carell is uh, using his high-pitched shouting voice. Oh he shouts God. at Timothy Shelby, you were on the polo team, the water <laughs> <laughs> team and you're doing this now it's, it, there are so many points which it's coming from a very privileged position they live in this upstate palatial country house yeah. Yeah. it's a bizarre movie it mm. feels like a sketch from a from a sketch show yeah. isn't it or and a fake movie from a rom-com or something, yeah. Yeah. something like that and uh, like David Chef is like a freelance writer and they live in this massive house I mean I know he wrote for the Reading Stone that's cool because he has a framed article on his <laughs> like okay but also his wife is like a painter And they mm -hmm. live in this huge house. And also, like, they keep spending money to try and help their son with, like, really uh, high-class treatments. Mm -hmm. And it just, like, feels like the elephant in the room that they never talk about the privilege and all that. Mm -hmm. And also, it really feels like a weird father-son relationship because it seems like... The, the film is based on a lot of uh, flashbacks as well. And mm -hmm. the structure of the film is really 
quite intense because yeah. it's like uh, chronological, but there are moments when basically the dad remembers things mm. and it suddenly appears and you see him years prior with his son younger and, and all that. And so it's uh, like really messy, but it's supposed to make you feel like that connection. But instead it just, uh, it just feels <laughs> completely just tacked on and, mm. and messy and confused. It becomes confusing. Yeah. There are certain points where I was very unsure of the chronology. Yeah. Scenes mm. where it seems like he's been sent to a college or he's not going to college. Exactly. He goes to live with his mum who lives on the West Coast, but then a year passes, kind of. The editing is so weird. Mm. That, that must be a way for the director, Felix um, van Groningen, to inject her, uh, some sort of, I don't know, style into a film that could otherwise yeah. be very pedestrian. I read that for the editing, he, like, I think he went for different editors. Like at some point during the production, he called his uh, previous editor from his previous film to like come and help. So that's not like always a good sign because mm-hmm. it's like he didn't really know what to do with what he had, I guess. But but I mean, it's challenging to make a film out of two different books, like for sure. But at the same time, it feels like you have so much material, you should be able to make something really fleshed out. And, and br- it doesn't feel fleshed out. But you could do... We talked about 24-hour party people last week, which was a film which was taking into account multiple viewpoints and yeah. the truth and lies and etc., fact and fiction. And like a Rashomon style. You could you could do something Rashomon style, something postmodern with this. But this is really conventional. Mm. And it just then dials in this soundtrack. We oh, heard no Massive way. Attack there. There's a sequence where uh, it's set to... A song that I think we should ban from being in anything from now on because there's been so many many films and TV shows and adverts. It's um, Sven Gienglar, the cigarette oh, song, oh, okay. uh, which is as used in a way I've never seen before. The drop, because it's a post-rock song that's very quiet and melodic and then suddenly it kicks in. It kicks in at the moment where he injects <laughs> heroin. It's, it's bizarre. And there's yeah. another sequence, as you say, Manuela, where it cuts forward back and forward between past and present memory and, and present where David is out looking for Nick who's gone missing and it's Territorial Pissings by Nirvana mm. amazing a very intense hard rock song it's, <laughs> it's bewildering they feel like they're from different moments or they should be at different moments in the film or they're just from different things entirely I was speaking to someone about it and they said that they thought that they had accidentally left a tab open or something <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it's yeah. just it's so strange it's incapable of just sitting at a lower register for yeah. anything because they'll be like he would be driving to college and this huge like kind of end of the movie song is playing or something and <laughs> so then weird. you know and then it will cut and he's leaving college because he dropped out <laughs> it's so strange so it, it feels like I mean the soundtrack and maybe it's because uh, David Chef is a Rolling Stone writer I wonder what 90s early 2000s period Cameron Crowe would have done with this film that's so something that's missing here is an actual humanity and, and compassion for the characters and mm-hmm. getting inside the characters heads and their emotions that's also, missing here and also like more like uh, weirdness I think like mm. more like because she, like it's like a really different unusual experience so you want it to be not conventional you want it to be like it felt sanitized yeah mm. it felt super like oh these are just regular people there's absolutely nothing different about them and I'm like that's boring like maybe it's true but like there's a way to show that they have personalities they are different and it mm-hmm. just feels super like this could happen to you like it, that's why it feels really prevention to me mm-hmm. it could have gone a lot more into Nick's viewpoint of things so we know more about like the real experience of what he went yeah. through and not just like yeah. the kind of common talking points that people will like know about already like mm-hmm. the things that people would be think about when they think drug addict drama yeah. I was thinking a lot about the Safdie brothers uh, heaven knows what right um, throughout because based on a real story mm. it takes place entirely from the well, the actress it's based on her own mem- experiences uh, living homeless as a drug addict and I mean it's all shot in these very like tight close ups by 
Sean Price Williams, mm-hmm. and it's very much from her perspective, and it's mm-hmm. harrowing. And again, it's a very kind of specific thing that you don't get in Beautiful Boy, mm-hmm. and I was kind of felt missing mm-hmm. kind of throughout the whole thing. Mm-hmm. At this point, I can't really recount any of the sequences where it felt genuine. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe apart from like with them saying goodbye at the airport, but uh, mm-hmm. just because mm-hmm. it was. It just felt a lot smaller than everything else, yeah, which was yeah. nice. But it's, it's also a shame because, like, ultimately, the the film is about how sometimes, like, you you have to let your the people help themselves, and that's like a really tough message about mm-hmm. fatherhood and parenthood, and it's like a quite sad story in the end. But like, it's a shame to frame it in this really sanitized and like beautiful way when mm-hmm. it's like actually really hardcore. I can imagine that's what brought all these people to this project. This yeah. idea that. It, it would be like a brutal drama. Or that it's about how the care, the natural love that you have for your child or your family members, even when you want to help them through these issues, these problems they're having, it will always be enabling in some way. Yeah, it's, you, or it's not enough or it's not right right You now. can't help a person who doesn't want to help themselves. Mm. It's, that is a kernel of something here in this film that I don't think is covered very often, but it's just doesn't isn't really exploited here. And you talk about how Nick is very inaccessible in this movie. You know, nearly all of the interiority we get for Nick is usually through some very contrived sequences. There's one which um, where David Chef finds Nick's notebook and is just flicking through all these sketches where he's like, I I love drugs. (laughs) It's like like drugs are amazing in in, in his sketchbook. But part of what is making this film quite um, notable for many people is that it's the first major performance by Timothy Chalamet after Call Me By Your Name. Mm. And is that going to uh, I don't satisfy think. the Timothy stands? Well, I'm sure he's going to satisfy the stands, but <laughs> I don't I don't think he's that great in it. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm just sorry. And it's partly not his fault because I think the character, as we said, like is really not quite anything. Like, He's just a guy <clears> who takes drugs. He doesn't have personality or anything. So it's really hard to play that. I can't help but compare him again to Lucas Hedges, who has his own like druggy movie. Then because like, Lucas Hedges was in, was in, incredible in Manchester by the Sea. Exactly, yeah. and uh, and they were both in Lady Bird as well, which right. is interesting. But in that movie, Ben is back. I think Lucas Hedges has more like he's, there's something more convincing about him, and it's a different film, obviously. But I just yeah. I'm more Team Hedges. I don't want to choose, but I, mm-hmm. I guess you had to choose. I think it's like a difficult role, though, because the yeah. character just feels like it's his character from his father's perspective, just like exactly. kind of unknowable, seemingly unknowable, and that doesn't really translate well mm-hmm. for us. It's, it's really a shame because it's a weird way to perceive someone who's in who's suffering so much. It's like yeah. just like you're supposed to be just a regular guy. And it's mm. like, no, like he has a life. And, you know, maybe he's privileged or whatever. Maybe he's been fine all this time, but that doesn't mean... Like he's growing up as well. He's like in puberty and things. So it's, it feels really like a dad who really doesn't want to understand his son in a way. Mm. Like he wants to understand the science of drugs, but he doesn't want to understand the, you know, the psychology or like the personality. And it's such a shame. And also just one more thing to talk about performance. I think Steve Carell is really good in this. Okay. okay like everybody's okay, like, something. he's okay. ridiculous. I think he's great. Except when he screams. When yeah. he screams, so funny. it's not like, I, th- I want someone to make a video on YouTube of just every time Steve Carell screams in a drama because it's really funny. It's a f- it like, sounds like a funny voice, doesn't it? Oh, it's so funny. <laughs> like he's putting on a funny voice. Yeah. Let's uh, put some scores on this so we can get to the sixth sense. So I'm going to come to you first, Manuela. Anticipation, two. Yeah, two, three, because I like Steve Carell. <laughs> Enjoyment, I would say two. And retrospect, two. Yeah, for all the reasons I've said before. Okay. I'm straight twos. I wasn't looking forward to it because it never really looked like my kind of drama and I was right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I started tuning out for the reasons I've mentioned. I just thought it was kind of for a true story it felt extremely fake um, mm. which is 
kind of upsetting to say. I don't like. I don't want to discredit anyone's like real experiences, but it's just upsetting that the film wasn't able to convey them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so mm-hmm. yeah, in retrospect, a two straight twos for me. I'm afraid I should say that. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hannah Woodhead reviewed this for Little White Lies much more positively, I think all three of us uh, did there, so you can check out her review at lwlies.com. And uh, Steve Carell will be back in Vice. He's had a busy old January between this Vice and Welcome to Marwen. We'll talk about that when it comes up. But first, we're going to be back uh, in the wonderful world of M. Night Shyamalan for The Sixth Sense. A zeitgeist-grabbing sensation back in 1999, The Sixth Sense was a breakout hit for M. Night Shyamalan. It grossed over $600 million worldwide, coming second only to The Phantom Menace in the end of your tallies. And it was nominated for six Academy Awards. But how does it stand up? We had some great comments from the listeners here. Manuela, do you want to read a couple out? Yeah, Benjamin Bland said, Would be interested to hear if any of you can think of a movie that is more reliant on its twist than this one. It's a good question. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, let's get to the twist, but let's... Uh, well, any, any other comments? And Tommy Lee Edwards said that he thinks this is Shyamalan's second least bad film. So his second best? I guess. I think that... Because I, I think this person thinks all these films are bad. I, 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 is Tommy Lee Edwards nagging M. Shyamalan? I, I, think? I, would, I think he is. I would think so. Cam, any comments? From Alex Do Dr. Wits. One of my top films of all time, the twists and scares are never gratuitous, but always folded back into the main character's rich emotional lives, which takes centre stage in the two-pronged ending. People talk about the film's craft, but not enough about its heart. 
Yes, and I've got Kevin Gavin here uh, with an email. The 90s were littered with successful movies that featured a big twist. It started with The Crying Game, included Primal Fear, The Usual Suspects, Fight Club and The Sixth Sense. These movies were honoured with plenty of awards, including Oscar nominations. Of all the movies mentioned above, The Sixth Sense is the one I didn't rewatch, apart from the performances of Colette and Osmond's. I found it bland and with a gaping hole of a twist. How didn't he realise he was a ghost? He was a psychologist, an educated doctor, and he was wandering around for a year with nobody interacting with him? Check for your pulse, Brucey. I certainly did when this movie left me cold. Kevin, wow. Strong words. Spending a whole year with your wife who doesn't even look at you is pretty... It's pretty weird. But who knows knows how ghosts experience time? Very good point. Osmond says in the movie... They, they see what they want to see. It was the, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was Says there it in the clip. Yeah. It's right there. How practical. <laughs> so how does this stand up for us all? Had we all watched this beforehand? I realised that you two are a little bit younger than me. <laughs> yeah, so when I was growing up in France, I feel like this film was always on TV on Sundays. And so I don't know if I ever really sat down to watch it properly, maybe a few times. Mm-hmm. And I remember just being really terrified by it because it's, again, like about a kid who sees horrible things so I was just very scared but mm-hmm. then yeah I rewatched it and I think it's pretty good I, I, I think <laughs> I, I, it's not my favourite but it's like hey it's I think good. Unbreakable has aged better than this film yeah I think but so. both films just form this great you know, double bill of serious understated dramas that mm. use genre elements like, I wonder is this almost elevated horror before the uh, term was even coined oh. What would A24 do with a film like this today, is, is what I want to ask. Cam, did you like this film? I loved this film. Somehow I've gotten this far without ever having seen it, but I went in knowing, of course, what the twist, I guess, would it be two, is that two twists, I suppose? Just There's a reveal and a twist, re- I don't know. Re- yeah. yeah, you know, I, I went in knowing the reveal and the twist, just, you know, generally through cultural osmosis, and also because... Uh, there's a Lonely Island song called Shits in My Pants and there's a line where they basically say the twist. Um, so I just kind of had that in the back of my mind while watching this very serious understated drama. But I really liked it. Like Alex in the comments said, it has a lot of heart and I really liked the... Um, there's some really incredible scenes with Haley Joel Osment and Tony Collette that I just found really moving. As a whole, I found the movie very upsetting, more so than I thought I would, but yeah. I thought yeah. it was brilliant. I think people forget that the um, the reveal that Bruce Willis is a ghost is the second or third to last scene in the film. And actually, the, the, the way the film ends is with this moment between son and mum uh, where he reveals the, his secret to her and it's this amazing sense it's, it's a ghost story I think that it's a fantastic story, movie mm. as a drama watching it in the light of the, of the likes of The Haunting of Hill House on TV last year the way that ghost stories are actually human dramas about people who have departed us and how we reckon with loss mm. that's what this film is but also how would ghosts Likewise, dead people yeah. uh, reckon with their own loss and come to terms with the fact that they're gone. Mm. And it, it has some great horror flourishes, but it works better as a drama. Mm. I think the fact that, that its impact on the zeitgeist in 99 cannot be understated. I was not 15 when this film came out, so I couldn't see it. But there was a lot of talk around the playground. I thought it was incredible that uh, Edgar Wright's TV series Spaced must have been only six months after the film came out, had a sequence that aped the traffic jam scene at the end with Nick Frost and Simon Pegg with Olivia Williams in it. And the twist oh, wow. was that uh, there's been an accident where a lady's been hit and uh, it was literally William, Williams on a bike just knocking on the window saying, you have no respect for cyclists. Crazy. That oh my God. Fantastic. But let's play the game that I love doing, which is uh, the Oscar game. 
This was nominated for six Oscars back in uh, early oh. 2000, including picture, director, screenplay, supporting actor, Fahela Jalosman, supporting actress for Tony Collette. It didn't win any of those. Oh. One film won all three of picture, director and screenplay instead. Do you know what film it was? Oh, my God. Oh, wait, what year? February 2000 was a ceremony for the year 1999. Uh, the oh. listeners are shouting at us now. It is a film that has not aged well. Is it American Beauty? <laughs> it is American yeah. Beauty. Yes. Oh. Um, I loved it when I saw it when I was 15. I also love watching this now. Haley Joel Osment was a, was a household name at the time. Based on this film and AI, he really did not much else. It's such a shame. I think he's really... It's really strange because for a child actor, he's at once really mannered and at once really natural. Because mm -hmm. I think he moves like an adult sometimes, <laughs> which is really creepy, which I think is why like he's good in that part because he's quite... Like his experiences as a guy who sees ghosts make him grow up quite fast mm -hmm. and make him weird. Mm -hmm. But he's yeah, he's good. Death all the time. Yeah, it's, it's pretty like early to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, it's a he's shame. Amazing though, yeah. I just, I loved it. Like I liked his bit, the scene where he's sitting at the table with the big glasses and all the cabinets open. <laughs> yeah, and, oh it's and he's just sitting there like got straight face. It's terrifying. He's made so scary. Made me laugh. He's terrific, and um, it would be amazing if next M. Night Shyamalan did a sequel to this with everyone reprising their roles, even old Bruce Willis coming back. You never know. Oh, yeah. oh. It, does M. Night have a cameo in this one? I can't remember. He does. He's a, do he's a doctor. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he needs of course an he has a cameo well. in this. Yeah. Um, would, yeah, we, no. would we say this is uh, his uh, least bad movie or best movie, or would we go for another film instead? I mean, I prefer Unbreakable, mm -hmm. but uh, I haven't seen The Village yet, and I've heard mm -hmm. interesting things about it. I prefer Unbreakable, but marginally. I really, really like The Sixth Sense. I, I love these two movies. And even more, I love the fact that this made $600 million. <gasps> the second highest grossing film of the year. Hell yeah. You know, in a year where Star Wars came out. And there's also, I mean, a different industry yeah. back then. It feels so much like a Hollywood movie. Because mm. it's weird. It's made by a guy who's weird. It has big <laughs> actors. It's real drama, and it's it has crazy ideas. It feels so 90s to me, mm -hmm. late 90s. It's really special, different time. A very different time. Anyway, we, we, it's time to wrap up. We've run out of oh. time. Mm -hmm. Manuela, Cam, thank you so much for joining me today. Next week, we're talking about Vice, as we mentioned, Steve Carell, Adam McKay's political comedy drama uh, starring Steve Carell and um, Sam Rockwell and Christian Bale, etc. We've got Destroyer, Nicole Kidman, and directed by Karen Kasama. There's a bit of another Oscar hopeful there. And for Film Club, we are going back to the 1960s for the Manchurian Candidate. Go and watch that and let us know what you think at these usual channels at Lies or at Truth and Movies on Twitter at truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or at lwlies.com slash podcast in the comments section. Thanks again for joining me, both Thank of you. you. Thanks for having me. I have been Michael Leader and as always, this has been a 7 Digital production. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.